Thank you for listening to the Silver Club Podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Silver Club Podcast. This is episode number 53 with Scott Draper, a man who made his professional golf debut on the same day as he played in the semifinals of the mixed doubles in the 2005 Australian Open. This is a podcast you are not going to want to miss, but we're giving Colin the week off this week, and we've been pretty busy since our last pod been running around the planet, and there's been so many great events that have happened since then. I went down to the Walker Cup at Seminole back in the early part of May, watched the United States team win there. Seminole played unbelievable. I'm sure you watched some of it on television. Just a tremendous event and uh, just a wonderful atmosphere, very intimate, kind of that boutique atmosphere for an event. It's my favorite event of all time. Maybe I'm a little biased. And then we moved on to the PGA Championship. What a victory of the ages. Phil Mickelson winning just south of his 51st birthday. I spent a little time there at the PGA myself. I co-hosted a great PGA Coaching Live channel with Melanie Collins and some of the other PGA professionals like Joe Hallett, Joanna Coe, Rich Jones. We had a wonderful time at Kiowa Island and being a part of that 103rd PGA Championship. What a victory by Phil. On the Silver Club side, we've had a great major event uh, back in the middle part of May, right before the PGA, called the Islander. It was an event that was played at West Hampton and the Bridge, and uh, we had a, a nice crew there. Congrats to Vincenzo Salina Amarini, who won the overall title and the Jones division with rounds of 72 and 73. The Scotch division was taken by Jay Rohella, and the Evans division was won by Chad McGraw, who is our points leader right now. The Philly one day just got back from Rolling Green and had a nice fun add-on day at Stonewall. Congrats to Brian Simpson, who fired a 72 at Rolling Green and took the overall and Jones division there and our great silver medal you may have seen on our social media site. And our winning ways continued with Chad McGraw. He took the Scotch division as well as the Evans division. Uh, The Scotch division is really the fun name that we use for the net division. And so uh, Chad's playing some really great golf overall. And he extended his lead on our Silver Club Championship points list. Now, upcoming this week for the Silver Club, we're heading to Old Sandwich up in Boston and have a fun day there. We'll even have another fun day at Cape Cod National as well up in the Boston area. Maybe get a little lobster when we're uh, up in the Northeast in the New England area there. Uh, We're going to also go to Oak Hill and Monroe at the end of the month. And then mid-July, we'll head out and have our great match play major, the High Plains, out at Ballyneal in mid-July. And then an event that I'm uh, very excited about. Uh, It's just a fun time. We're going to go to Portland, Oregon uh, at the end of August this year. Many of you might know that this is the 25th anniversary of the great match that I played against Tiger Woods in the finals of the U.S. Amateur, uh, bringing a few of our Silver Club members out there to uh, have a nice event. We're going to play Waverly Country Club and Pumpkin Ridge. Just have an awesome time out there in the Pacific Northwest and really relive some of the, the great times 
that were had almost had an unbelievable time out there back 25 years ago, but uh, it was a pretty good time, and what an epic, historic match that was played out there. So we will relive that all out at Pumpkin Ridge. And I appreciate all of you who have downloaded on Kindle or ordered my recent book that came out that I've co-authored with Trip Bowden, and my wife Christy actually wrote the afterword. The book is called Hey Tiger, You Need to Move Your Mark Back. Uh, you can get it on movethatback.com, and I will personally sign it to you, send you a really cool ball mark and a and bookmark, and or you can get it on Amazon too, but I can't sign it there. So uh, anyway, hop on to my website there and uh, check that out. Get a little piece of history. Talks all about the experience getting to the finals and then playing in the finals of the U.S. Amateur and that very epic moment on the 34th hole where I did indeed remind Tiger to move his mark back. So check that book out. I think you will love it. I'd be remiss if I didn't thank the sponsors of the Silver Club Golfing Society, Turtleson Apparel, Torch Eyewear, and the Winston Collection. Three great companies, wonderful customer service and products you're going to want to put either on your body or on your eyes or in your golf bag. They've been wonderful supporters to our Silver Club Golfing Society for a long time, and we cannot thank each one of them enough. Don't forget to check us out on social media at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. Keep an eye on all the great places that I mentioned before that we will go and that we have been. We've gotten some wonderful pictures from some tremendous sights of all of our winners, all the golf courses that we go to. We just have a camaraderie-infused competition everywhere we go. Always a social function, always a great time, and it's really great to really get back to normal now. And we're out there and enjoying each other's company and just having a wonderful time traveling the country playing some competition and, and introducing people who love to do the same thing from all parts of the country and around the world. Okay, without further ado, let's get to our 53rd episode of the Silver Club Podcast with Scott Draper. This week, it's being played during the French Open, an event that he has had much success in over the years. Scott made it to the fourth round of the French Open in 1995 and 1996. He's been a tremendous player on the tennis court and on the golf course, and he's got just an amazing life story and great inspiration you are not going to want to miss right now. I hope you enjoy this next episode of the Silver Club Podcast. Okay, everybody, we have the only person to win on the ATP Tennis Tour as well as a professional golf tour in the same lifetime. Please welcome, all the way from Australia, Mr. Scott Draper. Thanks so much for having me, Steve, and what an introduction. Thank you. Your story, I don't know if I could, could give justice in an introduction to your story. It is just so remarkable, the ebbs and flows of your life and how you've exceeded probably your own expectations in so many ways and so many things. But I marveled at the story. And really, it's a story for the Hollywood screen, uh, for sure. Uh, we've, we've seen some articles referencing things like that. But your story is truly remarkable. And we're going to dive into all of that right now on this podcast. But back on episode number 31, we had another fellow Aussie a guy named Lucas Michel, who won the 2019 U.S. Mid-Am and recently played in the Masters and the U.S. Open. And uh, 
you were born in Queensland, Australia, right? No, from people who was, yes. hear your accent, uh, they know you're not from Tennessee or something. And uh, that's right. I but, could turn uh, it on a little bit, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't be very authentic. <laughs> and now you live in Brisbane on the east coast of Australia, a little over 500 miles north of Sydney and 9,280 miles from where I'm speaking with you today and the magic of technology. Uh, talk about growing up in Australia and and how you got really the, the drive to, to play sports and to get into everything you did at such a young age. Well, look, you know, one, you know, I feel very fortunate to have been raised in a, in a country like Australia. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the US and, and um, you know, could easily live in, in either, either country. And I spent some time in Orlando, Florida as well. So, um, you know, I think whether you come from the US or Australia, um, you know, very, very fortunate to have the upbringing and the opportunities, that, you know, that I've had. In addition to that, I think, you know, extremely fortunate to be raised in a in a family uh, that I had, you know, uh, middle class, you know, mum and dad, you know, phenomenal people. Dad was a hardworking builder, and mum was a stay at home mum. Uh, I've got two older siblings, and I suppose our family centered around sport. So we 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 loved our sport. We we played a lot of tennis, and that was one way as a family that we connected. Um, you know, spent a lot of weekends together playing, etc., traveling in the car. And the other thing, um, you know, was music. And I think that probably started through the church. So my, you know, my dad was a church organist. And so I spent Sundays in Sunday school, you know, listening to him play the organ. And, and I guess, you know, music, sport and, you know, um, you know, those connection points like church as well were, were really a, um, you know, I think a phenomenal foundation for, for me in my life and, and hopefully, you know, the, the personal qualities that you, uh, that are instilled, you know, through that journey, I, you know, I think myself and my, my two siblings, you know, we, you know, I think we're, we, we, I'd like to think we're really good people. And, and I think that comes from our upbringing, our mum and dad, especially, and uh, incredibly fortunate, um, you know, to, to be, to, to, do, to be doing those sorts of things. Yeah. We're going to talk about your sibling a little bit later, but uh, your brother, Mark, also a very accomplished athlete uh some would say maybe a mutual friend of ours would say that you're the second best athlete in the family but uh we'll we'll, we'll leave <laughs> that <agree>. too <laughs> but uh, which which is really saying something but uh at the age of 18 you won the Wimbledon Junior Doubles Championship 1992 was the year but before then at what point did you realize man I'm really good at this and I can I could do this even past the, the amateur or junior ranks. It's interesting, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, growing up in Australia, we are a long way from, you know, the rest of the world in, t in terms of the major competition. So um, travel was a, was a huge feature. And I, and I think, you know, having the opportunity as a 16 year old to first go overseas in an Australian team and travel through, through Italy and play a range of, you know, big events. And then through to my 18, um, you know, my 18th, 18th sort of birth year, being in the Australian team, getting the opportunity to play all those events, you, you do get to see what's out there. And even though, you know, I was lucky enough to win the junior Wimbledon doubles with my, my, my partner, Stephen Baldus, um, you know, I guess I actually had a lot of doubt at that time, uh, meaning, 
you know, I wasn't, you know, I was losing in the second round of, of Wimbledon singles juniors. And, you know, I thought there was a, a lot of phenomenal players and athletes out there. And, you know, I was, you know, lucky to have, I think on reflection, one guy, Grant Doyle, who was actually the best in the world, who was an Australian, or one of the best in the world. And when you sort of feel like you're a long way behind the eight ball in terms of some of those players, yeah, those self-doubts creep in. So even though I went from juniors into the senior ranks, so when I left school, I thought, you know, I want to be a professional tennis player between the ages of sort of 18 and, and sort of 20, where I really, I felt like I floundered uh, in the professional ranks. And you've got players like Boris Becker back then um, who were sort of people I looked up to. He's winning Wimbledon at, at 17 and 18 years of age back to back. And you're sort of like struggling in the, in the lowest form of professional tennis you know, I had a lot of doubts that I could actually do it. And you, you actually consider quitting. Well, I did. I, I, I considered giving the game away. And my brother was, was also playing. And, and we were both sort of, I think, struggling in some respects. Um, and I was just lucky to, um, to meet a gentleman by the name of Michael Fox, who was a sports psychologist and completely transformed that around. But look, I, I don't think in my case, it was one of those, you know, kind of Tiger Wood stories or um, Leighton Hewitt stories from an Australian perspective or whatever it is, where you're just phenomenal at a, at a young age and you're nearly told that you're phenomenal. And I was, I was brought up in a family, you know, where humility you know, was, was really important, you know, integrity, mm -hmm. humility, respect, those types of things. And I'm not saying that that um, uh, in any way, shape or form doesn't allow people to flourish. It's just that I didn't have that, I guess, self-confidence or, you know, real inner belief that I was, I was, you know, that good. Um, and I found that out, I guess, later in some respects. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, I know this is more of a, a golf podcast and I know we're talking tennis right now, but I think the, you know, and well, you've clearly shown that the, that the two sports can be linked together as far as the, the confidence factor and, and, you know, applying some of the same principles. How do you, I mean, whether this is on the golf or tennis side, and, and for all of our listeners, really, we're, you know, a lot of top amateur golfers and a lot of uh, good players who want to just continue getting better. How do you overcome doubt when things aren't going your way? What, what did you do to help yourself overcome these doubts? I think the first thing for me is that it's accepting that doubt is always going to be there. You know, I don't think it's something you actually get rid of. I think there's this um, one side of us that always has that inner critic, you know, that little voice that, that has things to say. And it's our ability to develop our inner coach to the point where it's able to listen to that inner critic or that voice that isn't necessarily saying the best of things. Uh, and then really turning that into, okay, well, look, that's probably a normal thought. You know, we've all got a bit of doubt, but what am I actually going to proactively do? What can I do in this moment that is going to increase the probability of me getting uh, things done? And we can't control outcomes. And for me, one of the things that I probably learned uh, in my late teens into my sort of early 20s is that I actually, I actually had to let go of the outcome a, a lot more than I was. You know, we want to do well. We want to, you know, whether it's in golf, shoot low numbers, win tournaments, same thing in tennis, you want to win tournaments. Uh, but that becomes too much of the focus as opposed to, okay, what, what's the process that's going to actually help me achieve the things I want to achieve. And I think that surrendering of the outcome is really powerful. And I also learned in that process that if I uh, can just accept 
that the only thing I can control is my effort and the way in which I engage in what I'm doing in the moment, then that's all that I should be measuring myself on. Now, if I get it done, there's some learnings in that. If I don't get it done, there's some learnings in that. But just focus on the effort and the process. And if you do that, there is actually no such thing as failure in my mind. You, you, you measure success certainly on a, on a different scale than, uh, and that's, that has definitely led to a lot of success that you've had. Uh, you, you, you were through, a, as a young person, really through a lot of ups and downs through all the, the great play on the tennis side. And later you got into the, into the golfing world, but you know, tennis was really the, the main focus early. And, and this, your, your story really is something that it kind of hits home to me, honestly. Uh, it's the story of young love, really. I mean, now you're you're married. You you're you have a very established family. Uh, three children: thirteen, twelve, and ten. Two boys and a girl, and a lovely wife, Jess. And but you had some tragedy along the way. And talk to us about some of those those ups and downs early. You had a love of your life that passed away very quickly, in a way, from a dreadful disease. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Look, um, you know, we've all got our story and uh, I feel very, very fortunate to have, you know, led the life that I have. And I think, you know, the the ebbs and flows, as you sort of described up front and, and the highs and lows, I think you need both to really appreciate um, the highs. You need to have those lows and it's it's a fact of life that we all have to navigate at some point. So going back um, in terms of a bit of the story here, when I, you know, described how I was having doubt about being a tennis player and whether I could do it or not, at that time when I met that gentleman, Michael Fox, who started to really transform me as a, as a, as a competitor, I'd like to say, um, I actually met my first wife, Kelly, at the, at the same time. And I guess these two stories really converged whereby I was on the ascendancy in terms of my, um, you know, my tennis, my ranking, I was, you know, starting to really see some change and I was, you know, absolutely head over heels in love with this, with this girl, Kelly, um, who was from the Gold Coast and, uh, you know, her family had a, had a tennis center. Her dad was a tennis coach and, and uh, I, um, was on this rapid rise and I had to leave the country, um, not had to, but I chose to leave the country in 1995 to go and, you know, play the ATP tour. And I, you know, went through Tokyo and it was an amazing first experience over there and, you know, end up qualifying and playing Andre Agassi in the quarterfinals when he was number one. And, you know, then I went to a few challenges and won one of those and got to the French open, uh, which is, you know, traditionally sort of May, June, uh, mid year, and Kelly had decided also that she wanted to take a European, uh, you know, holiday and see some of her friends. So I'm at the French Open. I end up going through qualifying, which is the first um, time I've ever played the French Open other mm-hmm. than juniors. And I get through the qualifying, which is, you know, an achievement in itself, given it was my first time. And then I ended up progressing through the draw. And now Kelly decides to come from the UK to Paris to stay with me for the week. And I ended up making the fourth round. So I made the last 16 of the French Open. Wow. You know, and I cracked the top 100 uh, for the first time. And the amazing part of that was nine months prior, I was not ranked in the world. So I went from a ranking of zero to the top 100 in the world in nine months. I got Kelly sort of by my side. We weren't officially dating at this stage. And um, I guess that was the, the, the real um, 
spark that all just started to, you know, to manifest into this thing where we, we are both head over heels. I'm living the life on the tour. Uh, you know, she has committed to me. I've committed to her and, and we're away. Now, the, the, the tricky part about this story is that as you described, she had a disease called, you know, cystic fibrosis, and it's a, it's a genetic disease that you are, are born with. And when I first met her, I knew through the family that she had it, but I didn't really know, I didn't really, you know, know what that would entail or what it entailed to have cystic right, fibrosis. Right. And I learned along the way that there was a lot to it and it requires, you know, daily treatment, physiotherapy, um, you know, she would have, you know, her inhaler, which, you know, had antibiotics and there were certain digestive needs. But there was this other side where, you know, she, if she got sick, she would have these hospital visits for sort of three weeks where she'd have to have intravenous antibiotics and a whole range of physiotherapy. And that's the stuff that creates the scarring in the lungs, which is the fibrosis aspect of cystic fibrosis. And that's the stuff that is shortening uh, their life expectancy. So I guess, um, the intricacies of that was that I was trying to navigate being a professional tennis player in my early twenties. Um, you know, absolutely in love with this beautiful, you know, woman in Kelly, she's got cystic fibrosis for the next five years that, um, you know, I guess we spent together, you know, obviously some of it dating, some of it being engaged, some of it being married, uh, was some of the most incredible times in my life. And without doubt, some of the most incredibly difficult times in my life. Um, and I, I think I learned a lot about myself. Uh, I think I learned a lot about, you know, what's possible, uh, what courage entails, what resilience really means, um, you know, how we can really um, gain different perspectives. And uh, Kelly, I think in many respects, taught me a lot of that stuff. You know, you know having, a, having a disease where your life expectancy is, is 28 at the time, it has increased now to, to over 40, which is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, for her to attack life the way she did, never complain, was never a burden. And what she was going through at times was extraordinary. And it just didn't get in her way. And I, and I just thought that mindset and that approach to life was, was inspiring. And so I think one of the things that I've taken away from my time with Kel um, is that, you know, I had this sort of saying, you know, have a crack, have a crack in life. Like it's not a dress rehearsal. We all sort of say that, but she was living proof of that. And so there's something sitting within me where I don't want to ever disrespect the very thing that she stood for. And I, I guess it's part of why I just, you know, dive into the deep end and have a go at things that I'm passionate about. Well, that's, that's a, yeah, it's a lot a lot to unpack when you're when you're that age and you're dealing with with all of those uh, those things and trying to create your own career and and uh, pretty amazing. 1998 though, uh, you ended up. I mean, the, the year that you got married to Kelly, you ended up winning that your first ATP tour event. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, on, just describe the the feeling. Had to be on top of the world. Well. It- it, it was a surreal moment for a lot of reasons. Um, you, you know, one, I wouldn't say that grass was necessarily my best surface. Um, but what was interesting about that story is what happened just prior. So the, the 1998 French Open, uh, uh, Kelly went into hospital. So I was due to play the first round of the French Open uh, on, the, you know, on the Monday 
the draw gets split in two. So you either play on the Monday or the Tuesday. I, I was in the in the top half or whatever it was. So I had to play on the Monday. Kelly, um, due to those, some of those digestive challenges that she had, um, she started to get some stomach pains and whatnot. And she took something that she thought was a laxative, but it was actually a binding uh, drug and it made things worse. So Sunday night before I'm due to play Monday morning, 11 a.m. Uh, at Roland Garros, Kelly is just sort of writhing in pain. Um, she starts vomiting from pain. There's a whole range of things that are going, compl complications. So we, we ring the hotel to get a doctor and he comes in. You know, I can't speak French very well and he didn't speak English very well, <laughs> but we kind of doing a bit of charades, got a ambulance kind of uh, organized. We went to the public hospital and I'm trying to say to them that you do not want to give her a general anesthetic if you can help it because that it's not ideal for, for CF sufferers to have general anesthetic. Mm -hmm. And I think that they probably didn't understand that very well. But anyway, um, she had an emergency sur surgery. She had a twisted bowel and um, uh, we wake up, you know, we go through the night. She wakes up, she's, she's going okay. Um, and I'm making this decision like, Jesus, what do I do? I hadn't slept all night. And uh, uh, I called my trainer and, and uh, there was a fellow tennis player, Mark Woodford, who, you know, was a, a, is a well-known sort of famous doubles player, the mm -hmm. Woodies, they, they won a lot of titles. Anyway, so Mark Woodford um, comes to the hospital support because the, the, the decision I made was that Kelly, the number one thing for her was not wanting to be a burden. So if she felt responsible for preventing me from playing, you know, Roland Garros, I felt that was an issue. So I decided to play. So I got Mark Woodford to come to, you know, support Kel. Um, and I'm now traipsing across town back to the Champs-Élysées to get to my hotel, to get my stuff together. And I'm grabbing sort of breakfast on the go. And I get to the courts um, at 10 to 11. And normally you're there sort of two, three hours before you're doing warm-ups. And I right. had all sorts of things. So I've literally just uh, got my name. I had a bit of a knee problem at the time. So I've taped the knee, you know, and got on court and uh, just had this mindset that I'm going to go back to the, the hospital and tell Kel that I won, which I did. So I won the first round, um, you know, which is kind of, you know, an interesting thing in itself. Ended up being very fatigued for the next match, lost second round. And because yeah. I'd done well in the previous years, my ranking fell outside the top 100 for the first time. Mm -hmm. So then we get to Queens, which is the preceding tournament to Wimbledon. And um, I'm now outside the, outside the top 100. Kel is sort of battling with a health and I don't know what happened, but I just, I was, um, I was in a place of, I, don't, I think appreciation. Um, I don't know, just Kel was going okay. She's starting to get on the mend. Uh, I'd sort of, you know, you know, surrendered the outcome, so to speak. And I just had a week where everything just clicked. And I can't explain to you why that is, to be honest. Um, uh, and I ended up winning Queens, which, you know, traditionally is known as an event that if you win it, you're earmarked to be the favorite for Wimbledon, which, you know, obviously <laughs> I wasn't going to be. Um, so to win that event, but what preceded it was kind of uh, just a really surreal, extraordinary kind of thing that happened. Um, and I ended up having one of the best years I had on, on tour, um, you know, I cracked the top 50 and anyway, so it was, it was an interesting <laughs> time for me. Really that's, interesting. That's really unbelievable. I mean, we talk about the success in tennis at such a young age, and now you look at the professional golf world, and over the last 10 years or so, it's gotten so young. Um, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty remarkable how young the golfing world has gotten. How much, I mean, when you play tennis, 
how much has experience because like, obviously being younger, you're faster, you can get to the, you can cover the court a lot easier, but h- how much does experience blend in with, uh, with the, the youth in tennis as opposed, I would think, you know, cause golf, typically golf experience kind of wins out because you know, the greens and you know, different things. But my theory about um, this is that one of the things that I love about golf, it, it's probably my, my favorite thing about the game is that you are the master of your own destiny. Like no one has a say in what you do. And I think that's actually a really beautiful thing. Um, Tennis, the attraction in tennis, conversely, is that, you know, you do have an opponent down the other end that is literally spending the entire time trying to put you into situations that you don't want to be in. And you are trying to do the very same thing to them. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the experience question, because the game of tennis is, you know, a game where, whereby tactically uh, you can be really cagey, you can do lots of things. And so in my view, because uh, the old statesmen of the game in the men's side, you know, you've got the, the likes of Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, but, but the, the men's ATP tour is still being very successful at an older age because I think there's a place in sport when there is a, a um, you know, a, a head-to-head kind of situation occurring where experience still, still plays a massive part because a lot of kids these days, in my mind, are overcoached. They haven't necessarily learned how to think for themselves, to, to figure stuff out on the run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, a, in, in many cases, a lack of resilience that, that, that's there. So in the game of tennis, because of the way the game's played, Experience plays an enormous part in that. When it comes to golf, um, now I will say that I think golf is a is a, a more, when I say professional sport, I love the culture of golf. Um, I love the traditions of the game. I, I, I love the way that those traditions in nearly all cases are upheld. And I think that the, the younger brigade in golf have a higher level of professionalism than the younger brigade in tennis. So we're not comparing apples with apples per se. But what I would say is that because the athleticism in sport has gone through the roof, so things like movement in tennis, the way people run around the court and the way they hit the ball, it's gone through the roof. It's just like stuff that you can't believe. <laughs> Same thing in golf, how far these young kids are hitting the ball. You know, I've still played pennants on a, you know, on a Sunday for my club occasionally. <laughs> and I'm, I'm literally seeing these balls airmail me by 50 meters. It's, like, it's just, a, it's another world. But the problem is in golf, I can't use that caginess or that experience against them. They, they, they just do their thing. And I'm sort of at times thinking that's got to be one of the dumbest shots I've ever seen. But they, they pull this stuff off right. and you can't seem to create that dynamic where you can, I don't know, put them in situations where you go, well, we'll try this one out. Or whereas in tennis, you can do that. In golf, you can't. So I think that's why in some respects, you know, you see the younger brigade just literally being better athletes because they're younger they're 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 youthful they're hitting the ball like a ton so that's my theory on that i don't know if that if that uh, resonates with you or not no that's great no i mean i guess in tennis and i certainly never i i've played tennis very casually mind you uh certainly not even remotely close to the level that you played but uh but yeah in tennis you can certainly you can certainly paint your opponent into a corner you can you can definitely play to their weaknesses whereas in golf you have to always play to your strengths 
right? You can't, if, you know, you're not, you're not, the only way you can really try to get into somebody's noggin, I guess, in golf would be, uh, you know, give a little sly remark on the tee or something or uh, a little, but yeah, there's, there's very little of that. Uh, very interesting perspective there, but talk about, let's, let's dive in a little bit to the, the collision really that your career had uh, between tennis and golf. And the fact that you didn't even take your first golf lesson until the age of 25 um, discuss kind of how you got into, to playing golf and then, ultimately playing professional golf and then ultimately winning on the professional tour. I mean, it's just, uh, it's pretty remarkable. Thanks, Dave. So it's worthy of saying that, you know, going back to that, those family roots, my dad, you know, played golf. So he had golf clubs in the house and we had a, we had a football oval across the road uh, from our house and, and dad played as a sort of a four marker, you know, through his kind of youth and whatnot. And my brother and I used to grab the clubs and go over the road and knock them around and whatnot, but we didn't play any competitive golf growing up, but we, you know, we just love sport and we hit golf balls and whatnot. So it wasn't like I, at 25, you know, hadn't picked up a club. I'd, I'd hit a bunch of balls, you know, so to speak. Um, but I was as a tennis player playing about 20 games, 30 games a year, I would say, you know, rounds of golf. Uh, and I was, you know, a four marker myself, but I kind of had the ability to, to go low, but I could still shoot 80 easily. Anyway, at, when Kel passed away, I, uh, in 1999, so that's a whole other story in itself, but um, when she passed, I found golf to be one amazing outlet. It was therapy. You get with three other mates, you play golf, five hours, you know, a couple of drinks involved. Um, it was just, it was a massive distraction. And I, through the amount I played, um, you know, started to improve pretty rapidly. And I just decided, what the hell, let's go and get a golf lesson. So Ozzy Moore, who is a you know, reasonably well-known Australian golfer, um, he was my first lesson. And basically in six months, I went from a four handicap to plus two. And um, I was like, okay, you know, and I got to start, I got to start in, an, in, a, um, in, a, in a professional event local called the Queensland Open and, you know, went out and played. And I, I think um, I shot something like from memory 70, sort of seven or actually 79, 74, but actually the funny story with the 79, I got three penalty strokes that's, and I called some things on myself because I didn't know the rules very well. Anyway, another story. So then I, 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 I was playing some golf and then, and um, you know, that was the, the start or it, it ignited uh, a passion for the game when I was 25. And um, that's what happened when I came back to it later, because the next five years I go back to the tennis tour and, you know, I'm playing my professional, you know, my prof- playing professional tennis. Uh, but in 2004, uh, I had a knee injury that put me out of the game for, for nine months. And so what I did, I was basically training to get myself back into tennis uh, most of the day. But any spare moment, I was also practicing golf and I was getting right. more lessons. Whatnot. So that year, I started to really play some good golf. I won my club championships. I shot nine under for four rounds. Um, and I thought I might go to tour school at the end of, you know, 2004 in, on the Australasian tour school. Um, and I thought, well, even if I don't get it, I'm going to learn, you know, where am I at? How far off the pace am I or whatever? I'm going to learn something about what I've got to do. So I went to tour school in December of 2004. And, um, you know, I was also signed up to play the Australian Open 
uh, tennis in 2005. Right. And as we know, I mean, tour school in Australia is a bit different to the US. Obviously, US, when I was playing, it was um, three stages. Uh, in Australia, it's two stages. And the, the first stage is actually only three rounds. Um, and then you go to the final stage, which is four rounds. Um, so I get through the first, uh, first stage pretty comfortably. Um, I thought, okay, that's, that's good. And I went to, I went to the final stage and, um, you know, the likes of Nick Flanagan, who, who's, who's a U.S. amateur, you know, champion, he, um, he was in the field and, you know, you've got to make the top 35 to get your card, but obviously the higher you, you know, you get up the, up the ranks, you get more starts, et cetera. So um, I ended up going through uh, the four rounds and, you know, I get to the last day and I forget where I was placed um, at the time when I, when I entered the last day, but I, I was well inside the top 35 mark. And I ended up playing exceptionally well that day. And I, at some point in the round, I was about five under. I, you know, some of these things are a bit hazy, but I was about five <laughs> under at some point through the round. Yeah. And I started to think, Jesus, I'm going to finish top five here. You know, like, you know, so again, this is the, like, you'd never get it outcome focused. And I started to think about, geez, I'm actually going really well, I'll get top five. So then I started to, you know, just leak oil. And it was the first time that I really started to feel, um, you know, what golf can do to you. You know, it's obviously mentally one of the most challenging games. And, you know, I was leaking oil pretty fast. And I think what really put me in good stead was my tennis background and how to manage that choking, that, mm-hmm. that nervousness, you know, what can happen. Yeah. And on the 16th hole, I've, you know, I've gone into the left trap and I'm walking down there just thinking, you know what? Okay. When we get there, we're just going to get in there. We're going to focus on the spot. You're trying to land it and just put the best possible swing you can on this bunker shot. And I hit the spot and it went in the hole and <laughs> birdied it. And I was away and I ended up finishing about half of the round and, um, you know, came 12th. And I finished ahead of Nick Flanagan, who was the US Amateur Champion. So now wow. I've got my, my professional card. And that <laughs> was a, a, unique, a unique experience. That's, so that's, that was, that's how it all started. <laughs> that's really outrageous to think that, right? I mean, somebody who you didn't even get your first lesson until you're 25 and now you're beating a, a US Amateur Champion in a professional event. That's just That just shows you, you know, the athletic genes that you have uh, are just unbelievable. Um, and then that that first that first event the, the in two thousand five when you when you played in the Australian Open and the tennis side and then the your professional debut on the golf side was the same exact week. How the hell did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, I, I don't really know, but it, it wasn't planned. I I, I uh, you know I was always thinking that I'm going to lose early in the Australian Open because I was literally coming back from injury. I couldn't see myself making the second week because uh, Grand Slam tennis is a fortnight. And, um, you know, I planned to play the Victorian Open golf in the second week, which obviously starts on a Thursday. Uh, anyway, Sam Stozer, who uh, is a well-known Australian tennis player, she's, you know, won the US Open tennis, beat Serena Williams in the final. Um, she's also a great doubles player. So she asked me to play mixed doubles because her partner pulled out. Uh, and I said, yes. And uh, the interesting thing about that is that when we played our first match, I literally came off the court and said to my family, I said, we're a chance. And the reason why I thought we're a chance is because mixed doubles is, in a, is, a, is a game where it's all about the female. So if, you, if, if, you're, if you've got an amazing female playing with an average male and you play an amazing male and an average female, the team with the average male and the, and the phenomenal female is going to win. And this mm. is what Sam was, right? 
And so we're progressing through this tournament, you know, first round, second round, we get to the quarterfinals and I'm going, oh my God. Okay, so we've got a semi-final of the Australian Open mix to play and it's on the same day as the first round of the um, Victorian Open. So I'm, to- I'm talking to both tournament directors and trying to figure out how we can schedule this thing. So they decided to put me um, first off in the morning on Thursday so that I could finish my round, do my press, and then get across town and go and play the semis of the Australian Open mixed. And so that was a big, a big week. Uh, you know, ended up winning the Australian Open mixed title, but I missed the cut in my first yeah. um, professional event. But it was yeah. a, a crazy time. <laughs> Yeah, by the way, you end up winning the mixed doubles title that week. I mean, just I've never heard a story like that before. I may never again. I mean, that's I mean, has anybody even attempted to do that? I think is the question. Do you know if anybody's even I don't I can't find that anybody's attempted to do that, let alone pulled it off. Yeah, I don't think. (laughs) Look, I don't think that anyone's played. Well, I, I don't know, but I don't think I've ever heard of anyone playing two professional sports on the same day. Um, and, and again, I didn't plan it at all. It just was one of those things where, you know, lightning struck in, you know, for want of a bit of a word or phrase. What an unbelievable, unbelievable story. That's, that's pretty crazy. Well, and then a couple of years later, 2007, you ended up winning the New South Wales PGA, shot 20 under par. I mean, you hadn't been playing golf a whole heck of a long time and, all of a sudden now you, you, you win your 20 under, it's just like, you know, you're out there, uh, you know, like Tiger Woods in his prime. <laughs> well, no, we all wish. And, uh, we, and I know you <laughs> know that better, that story better than anyone else. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, look, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. I, I was, uh, I was, you know, seen as probably a little bit of a, you know, a sideshow alley type act, initially you know you, who's this bloody tennis player trying to play professional golf I mean, what is this what a circus you know and uh i think when i started to play and i played with a bunch of of pros and some really well-known australian pros you know you, you start to to get uh, a bit of a brand that hey you know yes he played tennis but let me tell you he can also play golf um, because for me what was really interesting was that i was a just a, a human being that had a passion for a game and I wanted to play it. And there were so many naysayers that say, you can't do this. You know, it's not possible. What are you thinking? And to be honest, I mean, life is filled with those types of people. And, and, and I think at the end of the day, if you are someone that has a genuine love for something, a genuine passion, and you put the hard yards in, then number one, anything's possible. Like we know that, but number two, it's actually uh, irrelevant whether you, you know, achieve what you set out to achieve or not, it's actually what you learn in that process that, uh, for me, re- that really matters. And, and there's no end point in life, right? I mean, obviously there is, you know, we, we're not, we're, we're mortal, but I guess what I'm trying to say is philosophically, no matter what you do, there's always the next thing. How are we getting better every day? What's the next thing I can transition to, transfer to, that's going to make a difference, whether it's going to fulfill you or help the lives of others, it's a, it's a constant kind of pursuit. And golf for me was just something I literally loved to do. I wanted to have a crack at it and I did. And so when I got to 2007 and you know, end up winning a professional event, for me, it was a real kind of pride in not so much the fact that you, you won an event. Yes, that's unbelievable. It's like, wow. I mean, I literally just won a professional golf tournament as a tennis player. That's kind of really strange. 
but it was validation um, for me that the the work I put in, um, the belief that I had that anything's possible, uh, that I learned so much about myself in the process, that was really where the source of pride comes from. And, you know, I had this kind of part of my purpose in life or purpose statement whereby I want to instill belief in others that we are capable of shaping our destinies to be whatever we want it to be. And I think that stems from experiences like that where, you know what, people say you can't do it. Well, you know, maybe so, maybe so. But do you love it? Do you want to find out? Well, sure I do. And if I don't get there, that's fine. I'm still going to learn a lot about myself in the process. And that's really what matters. Well, I think a huge testament, and maybe we'll go out of chronological order here for just a moment, but a, a huge testament to kind of what you just talked about and that, that we haven't discussed yet was the, the, the fact that you overcame uh, obsessive compulsive disorder as, yeah. as, you know, before the age of 25. And, and I mean, the, 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 the mental fortitude you must have to have to just overcome that and the, the, the incessant habits that you had in dealing with that. And, and maybe in some way, you know, as you became uh, into the professional golf ranks and, and I mean, maybe that, you know, the, the, the bits that you hung on to from that, maybe that helped you along the way, keep pushing you and driving you. Would I be accurate in saying that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, um, you know, I, I think that that obsessive uh, part of me, um, you know, to, to get anywhere, you're going to need uh, that ability to put the time in. And I'm not saying that obsession for, a, for any set, it's not healthy um, to be obsessive about something, but there are qualities within being obsessed that you're able to, you know, get into the zone per se and mm-hmm. put the time in and be self-disciplined and, and put the work in and all those types of qualities that we know are going to help us you know, maximize our potential and that type of stuff. The, the learning I probably got from my time with OCD um, and it's where that sort of focus on the process over outcome is really born is that I believe at the time when I had obsessive compulsive disorder and people who know a lot about OCD are probably thinking, what do you mean you had it? I mean, yeah. well, yes, it's a bit like an alcoholic, you, you know, you are an alcoholic for life. I'm, 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 you know, an OCD for life person, but it just doesn't manifest at all anymore. And mm-hmm. I, I got it under control. Now, um, I remember when it first started and it turned into this monster within nine months. Uh, I was, you know, taking three plus hours to get to bed every night. Um, you know, I would fixate on objects, whether it you know, might be a bit of paper or anything. And I had to straighten things in ways that made sense to me. And when I was happy with where I place certain things, I would touch it three times. And then I was never happy how I touched it. So I'd have this thing called a cleansing touch, like a reset to the right. And then I would do three threes, nine, another reset, three nines, 27. So I touched things, you know, 42 times, I think the math is. Wow. And um, that's why it took me so long to get organized. Now I was doing this uh, in secret, like, you know, no one knew I was mm-hmm. going through this. My family didn't, well, my mum sort of was picking up on some weird stuff that was going on, but no one really knew. And when I was in public, I would hold items and I'd count in my head. Um, so it got to a point where I've never felt, and I'm lucky to say this, I've never felt um, 
what I would describe as that feeling of depression, um, low, uh, you know, whatnot. I, and I'm, you know, just thankful that's not been something that's really featured in my life. Um, sure. However, I, I, I did, I think, have a, a, a period when it got to the height of this where I got that feeling. And I went to bed one night and I thought, right, I'm leaving to play a tennis tournament. Uh, I'm setting a date where I'm never going to do this stuff again. And so that was in two weeks' time. So the you know front wheels of my driveway kind of leave the leave the driveway, and that was it. I went cold turkey on all this touching, all this obsession stuff because I'd made a commitment to myself that that wasn't going to happen. And the freedom I got um, from that was amazing. Now, one of the things about this is important to say is that I had massive fears. You know, like fears of God punishing me. I was quite religious at the time, and hmm. a whole range of things. And that was what was driving you know me because I thought if I do it perfectly, well, I'm not going to be punished. So I think that I was a kid who was focusing way too much on outcomes and I was placing my self-worth on those outcomes. Hmm. And I think it kind of manifested into this real obsessive behavior where I was trying to control everything. And I learned how to kind of, you know, be more accepting. Now, when I say this, it was a 20 year process post then, because I didn't know much about OCD. I didn't even know what it was called, but I have discovered there's another part of OCD where you have these, these intrusive thoughts. And I was like, oh my God, I'm, I have had these intrusive thoughts for that time. And I also learned how to quieten that down and to um, not allow those thoughts to overtake uh, you know, um, my mindset. Yeah. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm now 46 years of age. OCD has been a, probably a big part of my 20s and 30s and I'm completely uh, OCD free. And it's kind of interesting that I was able to work through that on my own. And I'm not saying you should do that. I didn't see anyone. I mean, that's not the recommendation, but mm -hmm. I was just lucky that I got through. But a big part of it, I think, was becoming uh, someone who was just comfortable with who I was, focusing more on the process, um, you know, letting go of, of trying to be something that really you have in your mind that is ideal, but it's just, you, you, you are who you are. What are you passionate about? What's your purpose? What are you trying to do each and every day? How are you getting better? And that's been a real focus for me over the, the last couple of decades, for sure. No, that's that's tremendous, tremendous knowledge right there firsthand, the, the life experiences that you've had. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. We've just got a couple more questions before we yeah. go. No, uh, favorite tennis tournament you've ever played or, or like the, the, you know, in golf, the, the U.S. Masters is is the uh, kind of the ultimate That's on my bucket list. event, right? To uh, Yeah, that would be something dramatic to play in. But as far as the tennis side... Oh, I just side, to be there. Just to be there. <laughs> just to, right, just to be there, yeah. right? Yeah, that's, uh, there's no question. Well, it'll happen. It'll happen. Um, your, your, so. favorite, your favorite tennis uh, tournament that, that you, you played or maybe even attended even younger before, like what maybe like maybe your fondest memory at a, at a major tennis event? Um, well, for starters, you know, Wimbledon is kind of the equivalent to the U S masters, I think in golf, uh, yeah. you know, I, I grew up being a, I'm still, it's probably my favorite sporting event of the year watching the U S masters. Um, and Wimbledon's kind of got that, that mystique about it. You know, it's, it's a phenomenal place. If, if people haven't been there, you know, highly recommend, you like me, I'm trying to get to the U S masters, um, you know, to go and check it out. Cause it's a, it's a phenomenal place. And there's probably no other tournament that has the feeling, I suppose, of, of Wimbledon. I don't know if it's the grass or 
you know, it being in, in um, you know, the suburb of, of Wimbledon, you know, SW19, I don't know what it is about the place, but it's, it's got a real mystique. And, um, you know, I always treasured, I played 10, well, 10 senior Wimbledons. Uh, so really treasured, treasured that time. Um, but playing at home, you know, like getting a chance to play the Australian Open in your backyard and to, um, you know, I guess have, you know, your hometown, I'm not hometown, I'm in Melbourne where the Australian Open is played is not my hometown, but, you know, you're in your own country. And because tennis is a sport where you're literally away from home from, you know, February to, to November um, to get that opportunity to play a Grand Slam event in your, in your country is, is a phenomenal thing. Um, and, and I think for me, where some of this stuff might be, you know, born out of in terms of Wimbledon, which is probably my favorite feeling mm-hmm. um, is that as a family, you know, we, cause obviously no such thing as, uh, uh, you know, as, um, you know, cable or uh, how we sort of, you know, watch recorded or, or, you know, um, you know, taped events, so to speak, even that word of taped is a, is a, me demonstrating how old I am. Um, but as a kid, you know, Wimbledon was something that we watched as a family. So mum and dad would wake us up in the, in the wee hours of the morning and, uh, you know, we'd get on the, on the bed, the five of us and watch Wimbledon, you know, and I remember, you know, matches like Borg and McEnroe and things like that. So I, I think those things as a kid, you know, you, you see something and you think, geez, that's phenomenal. I'd love to be a part of that. And the fact that you actually played, uh, in events like that is, is kind of pinch yourself sort of stuff. Yeah. You got to play not only, you know, in some of those events, you got to play against really one of the greatest, if not the greatest tennis player of all time and Roger Federer. Uh, talk yes. just briefly talk yeah. about that match and how close that match was. Cause I, I guess I can sympathize yeah. being really close to yeah. Tiger Woods, but uh, yeah. talk about being that close to Roger Federer and how that match unfolded. Yeah. And, and too, Steve, I want to say on this part of this story about Roger Federer, you know, I think, um, you know, it, it, integrity is something that you hold dear and, you know, your story is, is well documented. And, uh, you know, I like that idea that, you know, integrity is really what you're doing. No one's watching. And, you know, uh, in your case, many people were watching. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and in this case with Roger Federer, there's a similar sort of theme, I think, in this. And not by the way, this has got nothing to do with Roger. This is about me. Um, so, uh, 2003, I'm in Cincinnati, uh, one of the sort of the Masters series events, big events that the ATP Tour has outside the Grand Slams. Uh, Roger had just won Wimbledon prior, and he was really on the ascendancy. And you know, I was sort of coming back from that time, losing Kel and whatnot, and. Um, I was playing probably the best tennis I think I'd been playing in my career. And I uh, ended up having seven match points on Roger and lost 12-10 in the third set breaker um, (laughs) and lots of opportunities. But the amazing thing, uh, and I'll get back to the integrity bit, but the amazing about Roger is that uh, I didn't do anything wrong on those match points. I mean, he just literally came up with stuff every single time, particularly on uh, the first match point I had in the, in the tiebreaker. I was up 6-2 in the breaker, so I've got four chances to win the match. Wow. And he hit, my, he hit my, one of the most ridiculous topspin lobs on the run uh, that was just a phenomenal shot. And uh, so I, I think one, the learning from that, because people thought I'd be you know, devastated having a chance to 
having a chance to beat Roger Federer, et cetera, et cetera. But mm-hmm. it comes back to what I've been talking about through this podcast, which is, you know, I honestly felt like I did everything in my power to win that match. It just didn't happen. So why would you beat yourself up about something that you gave your best effort? It yeah. just didn't, it didn't eventuate. And I ended up still having a phenomenal year and learning a lot from that match and having the belief that I can beat, you know, the likes of a Roger Federer. Now, in terms of the integrity thing, just briefly, I mean, I, um, uh, I had a history and coaches used to get really frustrated with me that I would call uh, or overrule the umpire at times if I felt like my opponent uh, you know, got a bad call. I'm not talking blatant bad call. So I had right. this kind of thing in my head. If it was like six inches to a foot out and it's called in, I'm like, hey, it's your point. That's just, that's crazy. Because this is, I'm, I'm talking pre-Hawkeye. Yeah. We didn't have the digital means. So now in this match, um, you know, I, I did this. I, I, you know, overruled and it was a big point in the second set. And, um, you know, I gave the point to Roger and, uh, you know, end up losing the game, end up losing that set. Uh, but I felt in my heart of hearts, one, I was doing the right thing, but two, I didn't want to win or beat a player like Roger thinking that I might've got a call in my favor. So I kind of was being ruthless on that. Yeah. But the, the, the irony of this, which didn't go in my favor was on one of the match points in the tiebreaker, the Hawkeye technology was out. Like it was available, but it wasn't in use yet. Okay. And I hit a, I hit a shot that was actually on the back of the line was called out and, you know, uh, yeah, didn't didn't exactly go my way then, but hey, you know, I did the right thing, and um, I can put my head on the pillow at night. <laughs> yeah, no, there there's there's a lot to be said about that, and there's no question about that. Uh, f- yeah, that, that's yeah, that's remarkable, remarkable story uh, to be that close to uh, one of the, the greatest players who ever who ever played tennis for sure. Talk about somebody greatest player who ever played golf on the Australia side, Greg Norman. Talk yeah. about, uh, before we head out here on this podcast, talk about Greg Norman and his influence in golf in Australia. So, you know, like many golfers, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, Jason Day, Adam Scott and the like, you know, um, you know, Greg was uh, someone we all watched and watched with interest. And, you know, we loved the way he went about playing the game. He was always aggressive. You know, he had such an aura about him. You know, the fact that, um, you know, he was, you know, pretty much top of the world for like a decade there. Yes, he wasn't winning um, as many majors as, as perhaps he could have, should have, would have, whatever you'd like to describe it. Yes, some of it was uh, in his control. Some of it was not necessarily in his control. Um, but, you know, for him to take on the world stage and to to be as successful as he was and I think in many respects, <clears throat> you know, inspire so many people to want to play the game and also how much he represented the, the tournaments within Australia. So whether, whether, whether it was the Australian Open or the Australian Masters or, you know, he was very visible. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that that speaks volumes about, you know, the legacies he's left for, you know, golf in this country. And we're just lucky to have so many, you know, phenomenal golfers uh, from an Australian standpoint uh, that, that I think represent Australia extremely well. They're great ambassadors, um, you know, and I think, that is so important to have those types of people that become the vacuum that sort of suck people into the sport because, you know, you think, wow, I'd like to be like them. Yeah, definitely. Definitely like to, to have played golf like Greg Norman. Yes, definitely a snake bit a little bit over, over time. Well, you're going to turn 47 this year, June 5th will is your 47th birthday. 
Any uh, any fashions on senior professional golf in three <laughs> years' time, yeah. or or where you know where will we see you? Where do you think you're going to be in in five years from now? Would you think? What do, what do you see? It's a good question. Um, you know, uh, I definitely you know would love to to play professional golf. You know, on the senior tour. Um, one thing is I stopped playing golf because of my back. So I, I seem to just get injured all the time. And for whatever reason, I couldn't keep it under control. Hence me deciding to give it away. Um, I think as I get older, it's kind of fusing. So maybe I'm less symptomatic. So you never know. I hit the ball. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't hit, the ball, I hit the ball as far, but, but um, look, I'm still playing off plus four. I uh, play once a week. Um, I love to compete. Who knows? But the first responsibility that I have is to my family. And, um, you know, I love what I do these days. I'm a you know, leadership consultant and mm-hmm. do a lot of work in facilitation, helping teams. I work in coach development, um, range of things that I love. And so I'm lucky that I keep finding uh, a purpose for me that fits with what I value. And, uh, you know, I guess I'd love to keep doing that. And it's certainly what f- supports my family. Um, you know, from a financial perspective, um, but golf is something that's sitting there. You never know. Uh, so five years from now, I'd say I, I'd still be doing plenty of the work that um, I'm doing now. But if there was a little sneaky extra game or two on the side, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, maybe you don't go back out of that meat grinder out there. It, it is a grind, you know, playing, I guess, playing professionally like that is uh, it is a job. It is it is challenging and right. If you're if your body can't handle playing golf six or seven days a week, uh, then, uh, yeah, it'd be very interesting to do. Well, that's great that you still have fun with it. Obviously, you can still flat out play great. I'm sure if you got on the tennis court right now, you'd be you'd be uh, pretty darn tough as well. But, uh, uh, you know, Scott, I really can't thank you enough all the way from Brisbane, Australia, visiting us t- today on the Silver Club podcast. Uh, just great story, tremendous. Uh, and, yeah, anybody out there has got to, you know, just – do more research on Scott Draper. I mean, you got to have a movie about your life or something. Uh, it's, it's pretty dramatic. What Everything you've done and in the world of sports and now outside of the game. So congratulations with all that. Thanks very much, David. Look, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and, and uh, you know, really admire what you've done and what you've stood for. And, and hopefully we can connect in the, in the States and have a game. Well, that's, that's tremendous. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, man. What a great message that Scott Draper just delivered to us. Thank you, Scott, for all of that. And thank you, our listeners, for following along, downloading, and subscribing to our great Silver Club podcast throughout the few years that we have been around. We will keep bringing you some of the greatest stories through the game of golf, and we can't thank you enough for all of your support in spreading the word about our great podcast. Don't forget to hop on our website, silverclubgs.com, and check out our golfing society and all the fun places we get to go. Until next time, we'll look forward to bringing you another Silver Club podcast real soon.